that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for this time to come into your word, Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to put aside any distractions that try to come in, that we just focus on you right now. We focus on your word. We focus on what you would have for us this day, Lord, for us to continue growing on our journey, Lord God, our journey of sanctification, Lord, to be refined by you. Lord, I pray that we just focus solely on you and your word and that we have ears to hear, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So last week, we had the victory of finishing the first chapter of the Gospel of John, which is very exciting. 51 verses that we got to go through and study. And there is much wisdom to glean from those 51 verses. And I want to remind you that each time you go back to them, you may have gone back or not yet already, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But make sure that you realize each time you go back, the Holy Spirit will reveal more to you. If you're surrendered to him, if you're asking him to be the teacher that he's meant to be, if you're asking him to be the helper that he is meant to be, more will be gleaned. So go back. Don't think, oh, I already read it. No. Each time you go to this beautiful living word, you're going to see more. You're going to be reminded of more. And the charge last week that we had was held right in that. Going through these verses that we've studied and going through and asking the Holy Spirit, where are the convictions, where are the confirmations that you need for me on my journey of sanctification? So saints, the question I have for all of you, all y'all out there, how many of you in your homes this last week actually did go back and talk about John 1? Was the last time you looked at John 1 last Sunday? Or did you actually ponder it within this week? And did you meditate on it? Did you chew on it? Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill, it is a time for us to be sure we are digging deeper into his word. It's a time for us to go deeper and deeper and deeper that we can know his word better, that we can truly use it as the lamp and feet for our guidance, our lamp and our light to guide us on where we are going. So if you didn't take the time to talk about John 1 last week, do it today after church. And tack in chapter 2 as well, the part that we're going to go through. Take the time to talk about the Word, God, Creator, Light, Only Begotten Son, Lamb of God, Son of God, Rabbi, Teacher, Messiah, Mashiach, King of Israel. Son of man. Remember those glorious titles. Those are all that we saw within that first chapter. Go back and look at that. Now today, we're going to move on to the second chapter of this book. And we're going to see the first of the seven signs that we know from our introduction to this book that we're going to see. And this message today is entitled, Wedding, Water, Wine. Now today, we're going to see that beautiful water to wine moment. And it's something that culture, many people know. Unfortunately, sometimes it is thought of as more of a magic trick or party trick than what it really is, revealing God's glory, revealing Jesus's glory within that moment. So all to say, if you know that story, if you've studied that story, if you think of that story, put what you know and be willing to go deeper today. Be willing to say, Holy Spirit, show me more, illuminate more to me of this precious sign that you give. And if you don't know the water to wine, you're in for a treat. So stand with me, lovely folks, and let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, but we might only get to 1 through 11. 
On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six pots, there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have drunk well, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture for us to meditate on, to go through, Father God. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to fill me, please. Fill me with your power. Anoint me so that I can give the truth to your people, Lord God, and give the words that you need them to hear this morning, me out of the way. Lord God, that they just commune with your word, this living word, that it discerns their thoughts, the intents of their hearts, and that they leave refined by you, Lord God, and ready to continue pressing onward in this word to be who you need them to be, for they're made by you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Grab a seat. Wedding, water, wine. So in this passage of scripture, we see a setting, and that setting is a wedding, and it reveals the circumstance of wine running out. That circumstance is then brought to Jesus through his mother, and we see how he handles her words. Then we see events and actions that follow the word of Jesus, and the result is fruit that points to his glory and deeper faith for his disciples. We read in verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, on the third day, recall what we talked about with this beginning of the Gospel of John. We're going to see a seven-day account in the start of this Gospel, because again, it's paying homage to the seven-day creation by God in Genesis, and then we have the new creation that comes through Messiah, King Jesus. So to track those seven days, day one, John gave his testimony of his ordained role from God. Day two, John gave his testimony about Jesus. Day three, two of John's disciples come to follow Jesus. Day four, Simon comes to Jesus. Day five and six, they travel to Galilee and we see Philip and Nathaniel come. And now we're at day seven, the wedding. So we could have seen here on the seventh day, but instead we see on the third day. And when we look at the Greek at this moment, the unusual grammar structure that takes place there points to another place in Scripture with a similar structure in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So the third day, we know that's a very special day. It's the day that Christ resurrects. And we land here right now on the third day, and we land with 
a wedding. Think about that resurrecting power on the third day. That gives us access to be part of the church, the bride of Christ. Now we're at a wedding. We can't take the event where we are for granted. A wedding, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage, God's design. The way we're teaching it to little guy, one man, one woman, one flesh. One biological man, one biological woman, one flesh. This is marriage. This is what we see, the unity of two souls becoming one flesh. And marriage plays an important piece for the body of Christ. Because remember, marriage is used within Scripture to show the relationship of Christ and the church. Husbands have a charge in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So this is the setting we have. The third day, we have a wedding, and we have to remember that portrait of what the wedding means for us with the entire counsel of the word of God. And the sign takes place at this wedding, the sign that we're about to see. And note that this is recorded only in the Gospel of John. A wedding, the portrait of our union as the church, as the bride of Christ, the groom, and the first sign, again, there, at an event that symbolizes our union with Christ. So where is the wedding? We see from first, uh, the first verse, Cana of Galilee. That is about eight miles northeast of Nazareth. That's why we see, and the mother of Joseph was there. It would make sense that she would be there. It's not too far away. She probably knows the family. And something that's interesting, a little side note to see, when we look to archaeology, we sometimes get some pretty cool moments and nuggets that remind us how real the word of God is. What do I mean? Archaeologists, there's an excavation site at Kibrit Cana, 8.3 miles north of Nazareth, most like the Roman town of Cana. And at that site, there's many, many potsherds that they found, broken pottery pieces, confirming the Roman era occupation. Again, it's just that little piece where it's like, wow, how real is the word of God? Because it's true. It's history. But again, look at those pieces as you go through scripture. Now, the wedding, Jewish weddings were quite a feast and celebration. They would last for days, even week. They would last, they'd go on and on. The families would be preparing much food, much drink to be able to provide for all of the people. Think of the time. If they're, they're all traveling to come to this wedding, they know they're going to be taken care of in that time. Now, we know Mary is present, and we should note in this that in this gospel, you'll see as you go through, Mary's actually never mentioned by name. You'll see mother of Jesus, but you don't actually see Mary. Now, we also see from this, verse 2, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. The mother's there. It would make sense. Jesus and the disciples are going to be invited. Now, we see someone's missing from this account, Joseph. Most Bible scholars and theologians believe at this time, Joseph likely had passed away by this time. So that's why we see no record of him there. Jesus and the disciples are invited. 
And the disciples, of course, are going to go with him because what is discipleship? 24-7 being with Jesus. That's the journey we're on, 24-7 being with Jesus. And it's not that Jesus says, oh, a wedding. No, there's going to be fun there. I'm not going. No, Jesus goes. He goes and he goes with them. Now we see in verse 2, a very clearly says, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Yet, it's one of those moments in Scripture where we have to remind ourselves, take what Scripture says, because at times people will take a situation and add or take away from it. What do I mean? If you study this passage and if you start doing a dive on different things different folks say of this, you can find some writings that will say this is Jesus' wedding. This is actually Jesus' wedding taking place. And you'll find that within some uh, writings from Latter-day Saints. You'll also find it from some New Age folks. And some New Age folks kind of on the rise within our culture right now. And it's fascinating that clearly we know that's not the case, but they will take that and put that there. Similarly, some will try to point to an old tradition that says this is John, the author of this gospel's wedding, and that when it took place, when he saw the sign, he left the bride and went with Jesus. Again, there's no writing of that in scripture, but these are stories that people find, they make up, man-made, and then people say, oh, it must be true. Okay, great. I believe it. Again, that reminder, yes, youth, I'm going there. Take scripture in context. Look at what it says. Don't add to it and don't take away. Don't just go with what man creates of God's word. Go with what the word says itself. So we see now verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They run out of wine. Jesus' mother goes and says, they have no wine. What's the big deal? Why does that even matter? Go to seltzer, Wegman seltzer, La Croix, all the different things. Do something else. No. Why does it matter? Wine has a special importance at this time. To run out of wine would have negative implications for the host family, for the new bride and groom. To run out of wine would bring shame and dishonor on them. Culturally at the time, rabbis saw wine representing joy. So the wine runs out, that means there's no joy within the family, that means there's no joy with, between the bride and groom. And it would bring shame because it shows this family, they didn't prepare for the guests. They didn't prepare to take care of the guests as they should. Now, some might try to say when we look at this portion that it's because of the disciples and uninvited guests. To them, I go, verse 2. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So they were invited. Could it maybe be the number of people? Maybe. Speculation. Something we do know is that the family that Jesus grew up in didn't have much wealth. As such, the family that they may be going to a wedding of may not also have such wealth. So it may have been more of a low-budget affair, and the family had what they did. And they, when they ran out, they ran out. Yet culturally, again, it would bring dishonor. It would bring the family shame. In some cases, there could even be fines for such a grievance. So we're talking social shame, financial woes from running out of wine. Realize in the ancient Far East, hospitality, we've got to understand, saints, has a very different meaning than what we think of. When you think of being hospitable, you think of, I know this person, I know them well, I've gotten to see them, I now invite them to my home, I give them a lovely meal, they're not going to stay too many hours. If they start to stay too many hours, I'll say, oh, tomorrow I have work. You know, we, we have our, our boundaries around hospitality. 
That's not the case with this culture. Hospitality goes far above anything that we could really think of. And again, this miscalculation just bears the result of humiliation. That's what this family's facing. Now, in the midst of that, Mary discovers this, and what does she do? She brings it to Jesus. Now, given that Mary is aware behind the scenes, possibly that wines run out, maybe she may have been close with the family. Again, that's just a speculation. But the focus, she knows that wine has run out, and how does she handle it? She goes directly to Jesus. She doesn't go to the master of the feast, which is kind of like the wedding coordinator. She doesn't go to the other guests. She doesn't go to anyone. She just goes to Jesus. And what are her words? They have no wine. Notice, she doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She doesn't disrespect Jesus. She just states the fact they have no wine. Now, why would she bring this to Jesus in the first place? There's a few things we have to think about. Think about the journey that Mary has had. She's known from the moment the angel appeared that she was going to have one for God's glory. The angel telling her of the supernatural virgin birth. And despite knowing that truth, she's had to just carry it. And she still carries it. Who knows the still shame and looks that she would get from people thinking that Jesus is an illegitimate son. The looks and the shame for she didn't do things the right way. We have to wonder what her legacy amidst those of Nazareth would have been. And as such, she's looking for that time when Jesus would reveal who he is to all. Because guess what? Then she gets her moment of vindication like, see, told you. Well, I didn't tell you, but see. That's the moment that she would be waiting for. And again, it's just like we see as we're studying through Psalms, leaving the vindication to the Lord, trusting his timing. Now, context at this moment, Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit's come down. The voice of God had said, behold, this is my beloved son. Jesus has gone through the temptation in the wilderness. John has announced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Disciples are now following. Perhaps Mary is thinking, okay, things are happening. It's, is it time? Is this when you might maybe say who you really are? Now, her tone, if we think about the bond between mom and son... It's a special bond. Her tone probably would have had maybe in there, she says they have no wine, kind of that. They have no wine. Take care of it. Let's go. Help. Get on this. We know that special bond that a mom and son has. And then we see in verse 4 Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, before we go on, any youth in the room, particularly the boys in the room, but any youth, any men in the room, I want to make this very clear. This is not a permission to say to your mother, woman. I cannot make that clear enough. I grew up with a Haitian mother. If I had said woman to her, I probably would not be here preaching today. So this is just a friendly reminder that is not an invitation. I wanted to say that so no one can say, Pastor Vince said I can call you woman. So... No go. Got it, sir? Okay. Now, all to say, this is a moment, again, where we can't just take scripture in the 2023 lens of our culture. Jesus says woman. But this word here, it's not a disrespectful phrase that he's saying to her. Recall John 19, 26, as he's hanging on the cross. 
When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So when he says woman here, what he's doing, this is a polite address to his mother. But in it, there's something important taking place, a shift as Jesus begins his public ministry. If we think about before the start of the public ministry, the last account we see of Jesus, we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 42 to 52, we see when he's 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. They're there, they go to look for Jesus. What is he doing? He's teaching in the temple. We see in verse 45 there, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. They come, Joseph and Mary see him, and then they leave with him. And at the end of that portion, we see, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. So we see at age 12, he's teaching in the temple. His parents find him. They leave, and then we see he's subject to them. He's obedient to them. But now, in the public ministry getting started, Christ is called to have a little shift in this. That God the Father is the focus. And he says, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mom, why does this matter? My hour isn't here yet. My hour, the hour. This is a phrase I challenge you as we go through, as you read the Gospels alone, see how many times you see my hour or the hour. Because it comes up throughout. Because Jesus is set on God's clock. In this one sentence, Jesus is saying, my time right now is only ordained by God the Father himself. I live on his timeline. I reveal myself in his timing. And I only do what the Father tells me to do. That's what we see there with my hour, the hour. We'll see it again in John 7, 8, 12, 13, and 17. We'll see it in those chapters, coming up again. And he is living on God's timeline. Again, we'll see this throughout the Gospels. A few places where we see Jesus reminded. John 5, 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. In John 5, 30, we see, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Then we see in John 8, 28, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus respectfully tells his mother, it's God and God alone I obey. I reveal myself when he wills it, and what I'm going to do right now, it's going to be what God allows him to do, and we'll see what he allows him to do in a moment. Jesus knew he was on earth for a set purpose. He knew his calling and he was obedient to his calling. There's something in that. What about us? What about you and me? 
Why are we here? Think about that. Now, youth in the room, particularly if we think of Friday night when we sat in this very room and we talked about CC youth, countercultural youth, and we talked about what the world tells us of who we are and what the world tells us of how we're meant to live. The world says, live for self. The world says, you do you. The world says, live your truth. The world says, you need to be happy. Just be happy. You need to be happy. The world says, create your destiny. The world says, be the change you want to see. It's a judgment-free zone. Be what feels right. Be what feels good. Yet, countercultural youth, what's our verse? Romans 12, 1 and 2. And if you recall, being his living sacrifice, there's a transformation that happens, and that transformation only happens by being renewed by the word of God alone. For that's the only thing that can renew us. So when we know that, we then can say, well, who does the word of God say we are? What is our purpose? What's the calling that we need to be obedient to? Because we need to be on God's timeline too, right? So we look at that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So first, if we believe and receive the gift of his mercy and grace, as we saw in John 1, we become children of God. And as his children, we're new creations. Now, as new creations, we have to then realize something about our new creation, about our body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have for God, and you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So who are we? First, we have to understand our body is not our own. I repeat, our body is not our own. It's his. It's his body. My body, my choice doesn't exist for a believer. It's his body. It's his glory. It's his will. So we realize that, and then we then at that point need to strive to walk in a manner and live in a manner that pleases him. Again, youth, Romans 12, 1, it's being that living sacrifice that we talked about. And that means as you do that, what seems important to you will change. There's going to be shifts. You're going to go from caring about what everyone thinks about you to just caring about God first. You're going to go from seeking counsel and guidance from a friend, hopping on Snapchat, Instagram, text, call. We're all, we all do that. But instead, you realize, no, my wisdom and counsel comes from the word of God. And then you realize my purpose, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why are we here? To do all for the glory of God. And that particular passage really also applies when we see later the meaning of these ceremonial pots and all of that, to think of the relationship to the law and Christ's grace and mercy. So in this, Jesus' hour had not yet come, as his will is to do God's will alone. And not just for the youth, I know I'm tying it to what we did Friday, but for everybody of this church, 
We need to strive to live on God's timeline, God's way. Jesus is the model of that, and we need to follow suit. So we go on and we see Mary's response. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary doesn't flip out on him. Mary doesn't say, I'm going to, well, listen, I don't, uh, great, your hour hasn't come. You need to do this now. You got to get this done. Get the wine. Take this. Do that. No. She just says, whatever he says to you, do it. Powerful words. Mary hears the answer from Jesus. And what does she do? Points people to Jesus. Not only does she point people to Jesus, she points them to full surrender and obedience to Jesus. It's not, if he tells you to do something about the wine, do it. No, whatever he says to you, do it. In Mary's answer, we see she trusts Jesus. She knows he will do what is right because it's in accordance to what God says to do. His will be done. Whatever he says to do, do it. Now with that, these are the last spoken words we should note that Mary has recorded in this gospel. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now that is not that invitation to worship Mary, to idolize Mary. She is not a co-redemption to Jesus. It's just Jesus. We don't pray to Mary. If you do, you're just talking out loud to yourself. We only worship Jesus. It's a point to realize because those of us, I came from the Catholic Church and coming from that, there's lots of things you've got to make sure cut the cord with. We don't go to Mary, Jesus alone. And what does she say with Jesus? Whatever he says to you, do it. Saints, think of what we've seen so far. John the Baptist, when he came, what did he do? Points people to Jesus. In the witnessing and the examples of witnessing that we saw last week, what did each of them do? Point people to Jesus. What is Mary doing? Point people to Jesus. What is our job? Point people to Jesus. We need to follow that. And we need to strive to do that. And also, we need to live whatever he says to you. Do it. No questioning. No doubt. No fear. Do it. And we have to understand, because again, our culture of today, we take this word and we either add to it or we take away and then we do it. So we add things about race. We add things about gender. We add things about whatever you want. Or we take things away to make it say what we want. But for those of us with the word of God, we have it. Realize it's not to read, subtract, do. Or read, add, do. It's read, do. Whatever he says, do it. And let's see how the servants respond. And remember, the disciples are all watching all this. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So we learn now about these six ceremonial washing pots, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So the liquid we could have is of 120 to 180 gallons of liquid potentially made here. Now Jesus in this moment, notice we're just learning about what's there. And that's a little thing you could just gloss over, but realize when a need is there, Jesus is going to start with what's already there. And in our culture of, I want more, I need this, I need that. It's, if only we had more room in the house. If only we had this. If only we had that. No. Jesus is enough. And then allow what you have to be enough. And pray for him to show you how to steward what he's already given you. 
and to steward it for his glory. He uses what's already there. Verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water parts with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Jesus tells the servants, fill them up. They obey, and they fill them up. Notice there's no recorded questioning. There's no recorded delay. There's no recorded doubt. They just do it. What about you? When Jesus tells you, read my word, do you read to the brim? When Jesus tells you, pray, do you pray filled to the brim? When Jesus says, serve, do you serve to the brim? When Jesus says, love, do you love to the brim? Do you just obey and go all the way? Far too often in our relationship with Jesus, we want a God of abundance and miracles, and we don't realize we start falling into health, wealth, prosperity without even noticing. Instead, what if we pondered, how do I obey God to the brim? What if we pondered, how can I seek a filling of his Holy Spirit to the brim, not for me, but that I have his power to do his will because it's all about him. Filling to the brim. And then verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Again, a beautiful moment. He says, draw some out. Take it to the master. They take it. Now think about this. The master, say it's a disgusting wine. The master of the feast might flip out. Say it's just water. The master of the feast, what are you doing, you fools? But what do they do? They just take it. It's obedience that's surrendered and having faith in Jesus. It's hearing that whatever he says to you, do it and doing it. And then guess what these servants get? A special gift. They're not the ones making the water turn to wine, but they are co-laborers in the work of Christ through obedience to him. Through their obedience to Christ, they get to share in the work being done. Don't miss that. We get so lost wanting blessings. We want experiences that we get so lost in ourselves that we forget our call is to obey our king. And when we obey him and do what he says, we get to take part in eternal kingdom work. The work of God of the creation. That's a mighty, that's a powerful blessing. Don't miss that. So the drink goes to the master. His response, verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So notice, this miracle, this sign, it's not done publicly. Because think of who knows what's going down. Mary, the servants, the disciples, Jesus, of course. It's done in quiet. At the wedding. Contrast when we get there, eventually, John 11, we'll see a public sign at a funeral. And we'll talk about that contrast, so remember, put that bookmark now. But the result that we see is the master sees the best, the top wine, saved for last. Usually the best wine is first, 
Everybody's had some wine. The taste buds are used to it. Good. Now we can put the bad stuff out. They won't know the difference. The people, these people that were hosting this, that could have faced social and financial shame and woes, now exceed expectations, and they go against the norm by showing the best wine last. The best last. Now, a quick thing on wine, because we can't be talking about wine and not just have a small alcohol caveat. Some people will see this, and there's the opposition to, to drinking, of course. And I can understand that, and they'll say, this isn't wine, it's grape juice. It's not wine, it's grape juice. No, folks, it's wine. And culturally, it would be mixed, two parts water, one part wine, but it's wine. It would take a lot for someone to get intoxicated. It did happen at times, but it is wine. Now, this is also then not invitation to say, great, Pastor Vince showed us wine in the Bible. Let's drink up today. No, it is not an invitation to booze it up, folks. We are not called to be drunk. And also, when we bring people to our homes and we fellowship with people, I don't think everybody knows the journey that every single person that's at your table has had. So I have you ponder, do you need to have that bottle of wine at that table? And you may be tempting a brother or sister who struggled with alcoholism. So again, these are just things to ponder, but we need to know we're not called to drunkenness, period. Got it? Good. So we now see verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now John gives us the why this all takes place. The Greek here, sign, because some translations you'll see miracle, but really I want us to focus on the word sign because it means distinguishing mark. This is a distinguishing mark that takes place through Christ that manifests his glory. It's a distinguishing mark that gives the identity and assurance of him, the word, become flesh. Remember John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In this sign, his disciples believed. They already believed. But what we're seeing here is their faith deepens. Think of our own journey with Jesus. As we see the word more, as we see him work in our lives, our faith gets deeper and deeper and deeper. That's what's going on for them. They're going to be with him 24-7. But each step, each moment, they see Jesus doing what he does. Each sign provides a stronger foundation for their faith. For the disciples, it's a journey of not believing in Jesus' works, but it's believing in Jesus alone. And you see, it needs to be the same thing for us, saints. Too often, especially with our me-centric and emotionally driven culture, churchgoers, you want to feel like you've got control. You want a certain type of music. You want the music to feel a certain way. You want the lighting to be a certain way. You want your seat cushion to feel a certain way. You want this to be a certain way because it's really all about me. And I need to have an emotional, cathartic experience so that I know I went to church and you have no relationship with Jesus. That is not what it's about. We can't believe in experience. We need to believe in the word become flesh, Jesus. That's who we believe in. The sign is present, and it's the inner meaning that has that spiritual truth that is so important. That wisdom that we saw in John 1, he's the true light. Perhaps in this moment, there's a reminder for them, the disciples. 
The no wine, remember wine representing joy. Looking at that, the wine, the world will try to give you joy. But guess what? It'll run out. Eternal joy comes from one alone, Christ. The world's going to give you its best first, and then as you take the pill of whatever they give you, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Guess what? We get the best moment of salvation, and then we get the finest tasting moment when we have eternity with our king. Think of the song that we sing. I love this song, Even So Come. Like a bride waiting for her groom. We wait for King Jesus. And then we get to have that supper with the marriage lamb. Revelation 19, it's going to be a feast and celebration like no other. Wedding, water, wine. There's more to this also that we need to look at. So at the start of the chapter, we see Jesus takes the shift, obedience to the Father. His timeline, God's timeline. Mary gives us those words that applies to us. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now we got to talk about the water and the wine. Because the water, if we look at verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now the water pots that were used there were used for the purification, as we see. These were pots for ceremonial cleansing. Youth group, pop quiz, member Mark 7. We did it a year ago, maybe. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Within Jewish culture, there were many ceremonial washings that took place. The purpose of these washings, to purify oneself, to be in the presence of God. The purpose, man making themselves clean. Yet, what do we know of Jesus? We already get the ultimate purification that needs no repeat through the washing us clean by his blood. So that dabble of water that I used to do as a kid at the Catholic Church meant nothing. Only the blood of Christ purifies Paul reminds us of this in Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Through Christ, the ceremonial washings, no more meaning. He fills us to the brim, clean and new for his glory alone. So these containers, they were to make oneself acceptable to God, the ceremonial washings. It was something you could do to cleanse for his presence. What do we see in John 1? Remember, no one can make someone have salvation. It's by the will of God. He's given us the way to fully be cleansed. Fully be cleansed. The water of ritual is replaced with the wine, is replaced with the thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied that we sang of today. The lack of wine means no joy. Guess what? The lack of Jesus means no joy. When the containers are filled with the brim, the man leading the feast, what did he have? Joy. There was joy, this delicious wine. When we're filled to the brim with Christ, guess what? We have eternal joy. The water changing to wine. Think of that change, water to wine. Moses, the first plague, what was it? The water in the river to blood. That was judgment. This water to wine is a foreshadowing of Jesus' grace. 
The lack of wine was going to face embarrassment. The water to wine, God's grace turns it into a blessing. The lack of wine would have brought shame on this family. God's grace turns it into honor. The water to wine is a portrait of the quiet internal work Christ does within us at salvation. He changes our hearts for his glory. He takes our shame, our embarrassment, our guilt, our doubt, our fears, all the mess, makes us new, and we run the race under his blood. For how long? Eternity. What's eternity? The best wine. The best at the very, very end. You see, we have to stop chasing the world. We have to stop trying to have dreams under man's standards. We have to stop thinking of that idea, live your best life now. And I'm not knocking, make the most of what you can do on this earth for God's glory. But guess what? Nothing's going to compare to eternity with King Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. You can set up your house and set up everything all these different ways. None of it's going to compare to eternity with Jesus. Water to wine. The law can't save. The blood of Christ can Water to wine, it's not a life or death situation. But in it, we do see Jesus still cared enough to act. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. In that, again, we saw full surrender to Jesus, full surrender to his will, knowing he's going to do what's best. She also knows it's not a life or death situation, but he still cares. Think of what we saw this week in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? The sign manifests his glory. It brings salvation. It brings communion with him. And it also shows us even the little things that might not be life or death, he cares about. Think of the setting that this takes place in, wedding. In the week ahead, ponder that idea, wedding, and ponder what is your relationship with King Jesus? Are you truly married to King Jesus? Are you in union with him? Are you one with him? Are you in full submission to the groom? Is he your savior and Lord? And that second one, that can take time. And we don't be the folk that's deceiving yourself. Yeah, I'm under his lordship. Of course I'm under his lordship. No, because you may be under emotional self-justification that ain't no relationship with the king. Are you truly under his lordship? That's the relationship. And when you're in that relationship, that's when you read Psalm 8 and realize there's nothing too small or insignificant to go to the God of creation about. Nothing. Because he cares. He's mindful of that. Similarly, in that relationship... We say, I love you to Jesus through our obedience. Our obedience is an I love you. That's the wedding. Water. What do you thirst for? What do you thirst for? Do you have that water that makes you never thirst again? Or do you have some water of laws, religion, or ritual that you got to get rid of? What do you fill the pot of your body and life to the brim with? Are you filling with the word? Are you seeking to be filled by his spirit? His word, his spirit, his way. I say it all the time. If you don't have his word and his spirit right, you're never going to do his way. It's never going to happen. And again, filled with his word, not replacements for his word. 
Not knocking devotionals, not knocking podcasts or any of those things, but it's his word. And as the servants did with the water, what kind of servant would you be? Would you take it and go to the master of the feast or would you look and say, Jesus, is this really, is this real? Is this really going to work? I'm not going over there unless you tell me it's real. I need a fleece. No. He says, do it, do it. And the wine, the wine, most important, do you live with an eternal mindset? Are you living always with your eyes on the best is going to be when I'm with my king? That's the best. I'm covered by his blood. I'm covered by his grace. I relish in the gift of salvation, and I look unto that. Wedding, water, wine. Because you see, for the bondservant of God, I want to get something clear. For the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't be a people ever who say, go with your gut. We can't be a people who say, go with what you feel. Because realize something. For us, it's a surrendered soul dwelling under the lordship, the kingship of King Jesus. And if that's us, that means we use the word of God and we dwell in it, as we saw in Psalm 1, day and night, to discern our thoughts and our minds and the intents of our hearts. And we use his word through the Holy Spirit for conviction or confirmation along the journey of sanctification. We don't go on emotion. We don't go on I feel. We check it against the word of God because that's the journey we're on with the journey of sanctification. Wedding, water, wine. This is a portrait, his first sign done quietly. It's the work he does within us. It reminds us of the surrender and obedience to the king. It reminds of his providing and meeting the need as he sees fit. And it's a picture of relinquishing the law and abiding in the blood. It's a picture of living for eternity. Lay your treasures in heaven. Think of eternity with the king. Think of word, God, creator, light, only begotten son, lamb of God, son of God, rabbi, teacher, Mashiach, king of Israel, son of man, the one who turned water to wine that his glory would be manifest unto deeper belief for his disciples and all who would read and see these words. It's a sign that shows his true identity as eternal creator of the world. The word become flesh, only begotten, Jesus. So there's one question. Do you know Jesus? Is Jesus Lord and Savior of your life? Have you come to that place to full surrender? And you sit here, you see these verses today. And we look at verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus says, come. Jesus says, receive my grace and mercy. Jesus says, believe in me. What are you waiting for? What are you holding on to that is more important than eternity with Jesus? What is more important than knowing that you can lay your head tonight on your pillow knowing if tonight's the night I breathe my last breath, I get the best wine that's saved for last eternity with my king? Or do you just keep waiting? He's the author and finisher. We don't get to know. None of, no one in this room are we guaranteed we're going to see each other tomorrow. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Come to that place of surrender and say, Jesus, I'm in.
And if you do know him, draw deeper unto him. But right now, I want us to take a moment and we're going to pray right now. And if you are at that place where you're like, you know what? I'm all in, Jesus. Surrender to him right now. Come here. We can pray together. We can pray right there. We can pray wherever you want. But don't wait any longer. Don't wait anymore. We see from this water to wine, the symbolism, the laws, all of the stuff that we try to hold on to, done. Come to the king. Have your name in the book of life. Run the race of eternity with him and know that you know that you know that you know I'm his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the reminder of who you are. Thank you for this sign that shows us, Lord, so much of how you came to give the new covenant, to give grace, to give mercy, to give salvation. The word become flesh that we can have eternity with you. Lord, right now we pray for anybody in this room who doesn't know you yet. Their name isn't written in the book of life, Lord. And I pray, Lord, in this moment that you would help them come to that surrender, Jesus. Help them come to that place that they say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. Jesus, I surrender to you. I'm done waiting. I'm done saying I'm this close. I'm yours, Jesus. Help them come to that place, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would have them even come so that we could pray together. That we could take a moment to pray together and pray for this life, Lord. Please, Jesus. Please, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you use your word as you always do to refine and grow each person in this place. In Jesus' precious name, amen. And I want to say one thing before we say goodbye. I'm going to be right there. Don't wait anymore. Someone's waiting too long. Don't wait anymore. Have a beautiful afternoon.